From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Welcome to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony today. Grateful that you are with us. We've got a great lineup today. Several interesting stories we're going to cover. The Biden administration appears ready to end feeding programs for low-income children in Florida because the schools aren't willing to let boys into girls' locker rooms. We'll tell you more about it. As well, a bill currently advancing in the California Assembly would give the state of California temporary emergency custody over children in order to help them get transgender surgeries and hormones. We'll talk more about one of the most radical threats to parental rights ever debated in the U.S. At the end of the show, though I am sitting in for Tony today, Tony will join us from Chicago, where he is with a group from the RNC helping to chart the course of the pro-life movement in a post-Roe world. And so we'll catch up with Tony today as well. But first, our top story today. In recent decades, we've become used to governors, mayors, and other elected officials refusing to enforce the law because they don't like it. And that's why it was a surprise to many when today, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis suspended Hillsborough County State Attorney Andrew Warren for neglect of duty after the prosecutor refused to enforce bans on abortion and transgender surgery in his jurisdiction, which includes the city of Tampa. When you're saying you're not going to enforce certain laws you don't like, that's a neglect of duty. That, quite frankly, is incompetence as defined in Florida law. And Florida courts have been very clear that saying you're just not going to enforce the law is by definition uh, a dereliction of duty. That was Florida Governor Ron DeSantis explaining his reasoning for the suspension. Now, this decision by DeSantis perhaps set a, sets a pattern for how red state governors will handle certain blue city officials in their state. Joining me now to discuss this is John Stemberger. He's the president and general counsel of the Florida Family Council. John, good to see you today. Hey, great to be with you again, brother. You know, so many times, so many people are just jealous of you in Florida and the, uh, <laughs> the leadership that you have in the governor's mansion there. But what was your reaction to learning that Governor DeSantis had suspended a state attorney for refusing to enforce the law? You know, Joe, once you, you just think you have an amazing governor and then he just impresses you once again. Uh, he's a force of nature, and it's if it wasn't clear before, it should be clear now. There's a new sheriff in town, yeah. and he's not putting up with nonsense. Uh, this is remarkable. As you may know, your listeners may know, there were 90 state attorneys that recently announced that they were not going to enforce the law, and only one of those state attorneys were actually in Florida, in Tampa, and that's Andrew Warren. Uh, and so what he did, really, as the chief executive officer and the role of the executive is to enforce the law, right? So he's doing what he's supposed to do, making sure the law is enforced, and he's even willing to remove elected officials who are derelict in their duty, like this fellow Warren. And so that's what we saw today. It's a remarkable move. Um, we as a movement just had a roundtable discussion about how are we going to enforce the law, and we were brainstorming various ways that that could be done, assuming that there was no recourse, but he's given us a whole new avenue of saying, hey, we're going to hold governors now accountable to the question, are you going to remove state attorneys and law enforcement people, including sheriffs, that refuse uh, to enforce the law when it comes to abortion or even, in this case, transgender surgeries and, and those laws as well? Now, John, uh, Andrew Warren, you mentioned, is the name of the attorney who was suspended by Governor DeSantis. 
He is himself an elected official. Some will look at this and say, this is an abuse of power. A governor can't remove somebody elected by the people. Only the people can do that. Why is that not the case? Well, because the Constitution allows us to do it. He has constitutional powers uh, to remove elected officials um, who he's removing for incompetence, for derelict of duty and whatever. And he's going to be held accountable at the polls as well if the people want to do that as well. That is Governor DeSantis. But I think the people are going to reward him for his courage and for actually making sure that the law is enforced here in Florida. Now, as I mentioned in the lead up to this story, we've seen examples of this for many years when Governor Newsom, uh, now Governor Newsom, was the mayor of San Francisco. He was conducting same-sex wedding ceremonies before those were even legal. Defiance, public defiance of the law is not exactly a new thing. Why do you think we haven't seen steps taken like this to remove, remove people who are uh, acting in defiance of the law? You know, I think that most political figures, they just lack courage. They're in it for themselves. They're in it to get along, to get along. Uh, they're not willing to take risks. And Governor DeSantis is saying, look, we're going to enforce the law. We mean serious business here in Florida, and we're not going to put up with woke nonsense. And so the fact that he's drawing such a clear line is remarkable. And as I'm, as I'm hoping, as you just mentioned, this will provide an example for other governors around the state as well. Hey, here's the standard right now uh, for the future. If you're not going to enforce the law, get out of your job, mm -hmm. because that's what your job is for. Yeah. John, do you think that's going to happen? Are other states, other executives going to look at this and say, hey, maybe we should be removing some people as well? Well, it's certainly going to cause a conversation amongst law enforcement officials around the country. Um, you know, George Soros has put his state attorneys in all over the country. Um, and so I think that, uh, you know, it's a two-way accountability here. They are elected officials, but so are the governors, right? right. And so we'll see what happens. He's replaced a Mr. Warren with a highly competent judge. Uh, to replace him for the time being as state attorney. And so, uh, yeah, I hope that in academic circles and in professional circles in law enforcement, and even like the federal society and legal places, this begins to be discussed as a legitimate constitutional use of the executive's power. Um, and so this is very encouraging to me here in Florida. John Stenberger, Florida Family Council, we remain jealous and we're grateful for your time today. Thanks so much. <laughs> Next story, yesterday, President Biden convened the first meeting of his interagency task force on reproductive health care access, which, had established, which he had established last month uh, through an executive order. And from that have come several other executive orders that he says, among other things, will help women travel out of state for abortions if abortion is banned in their home state. How important is this new executive order? With me now to talk about it is Connor Semmelsberger. He's FRC's Director of Federal Affairs for Life and Human Dignity. Connor, good to see you today. Again, great to be on with you. Uh, tell us about this EO. How, how concerned should we be about this? Yeah, so as you mentioned, this is the second of Biden's executive orders to promote abortion using federal laws and federal funds. Um, and I think looking at the details of this one, there is some weight behind it. And we should be highly concerned 
with the actions of this administration to radically promote abortion in our country. And this one was very targeted, very designed to look at how they can get around the Hyde Amendment to pay for travel for abortion, to go after any physicians that may have conscience objections to performing abortions, and even looking into how maternal health data is collected so they can show parity uh, that uh, abortion restrictions actually harm women. That's what this is designed to do. It's politics in the making, and it's something we should be highly concerned about. Now, Connor, you mentioned there the Hyde Amendment, and of course that's the, the federal statute that prohibits the use of federal funds to be used for abortion. But of course, I, the argument here from the White House is we're not using this for abortion, we're using this to pay for people to travel so then they can get abortion, presumably paid by not federal funding. Have they done so successfully with this EO? Do you expect any kind of legal challenge on the Hyde Amendment basis? Yeah, so as you mentioned, Hyde Amendment, it's now been in place since 1976. It's taken some different iterations, but the main text has been essentially the same, that uh, Health and Human Services funds uh, should not be used to pay for abortion except for those few rare cases. Now, um, it's never been, uh, this is a legal question that the Biden administration is venturing out into the breach to decide, hey, we think this actually allows us to pay for the travel, if not for the service itself. Well, that's never been the case, and it's a newfound legal theory that they're testing that the court should very quickly strike down because it just it completely violates the intent of the law. Um, if at the end of the day, the travel is then still allowing women to get the abortion, the intent behind it is that these tax dollars will not be going to pay for the abortions or even facilitate women getting abortion with these funds. But as you mentioned, we would expect a legal challenge on it. Um, I would think there's a strong case, very strong legal case, that that was never the intent of this amendment, and that would sort of be reading into this text as something that was never there. And so um, I'm sure there will be strong legal challenge against it, and uh, we would just hope and pray that uh, that the the legal battle would land in our favor that this is way over beyond the reach of what the amendment says. Now, Connor, of course, the White House has had a uh, a developed response to the reversal of Roe versus Wade. They assembled a task force to try to figure out what the White House can do to make abortion as available as possible in a post-Roe world. In addition to this executive order uh, allowing travel, paying for travel, I should say, uh, to get an abortion. What else is the White House planning? Yeah, they are pulling every lever that they can. They are not leaving a stone unturned to use the force of the executive branch of the government to remote abortion in our country. And it's really in a response because the pro-life laws across the states are one by one coming online, coming into effect. Um, and showing success that uh, states actually can protect both women and their, their children in the womb. And so the Biden administration feels threatened, and they are on the attack. They're looking to pay for travel, as you mentioned. Um, and again, they're now going to try to skirt around other federal laws, something we call the Weldon Amendment, that protects the conscience of health care providers to not perform abortions. They want to now claim that it would be sex discrimination for a physician to not perform an abortion because they have a moral or conscious objection. So they are going after everyone and anyone, even even so far as to sue the state of Idaho over such a nuanced uh, phrasing of their uh, life of the mother exception in their text, which just smells politics because um, Idaho's law is very sound in that it does allow for exceptions for the life of the mother, but yet they're throwing everything they can at the wall to see what will stick. Connor, to my knowledge, this idea of the federal government and Medicaid, which of course is a health care provider, something of a federal insurance program, Paying for travel uh, seems unusual. Is there precedent for this where they cover travel expenses for health care services? 
I'll yeah, you... so it does happen, but it's rare, right? So say um, you live in a state that uh, you're on Medicaid and there's a certain specialized procedure that your state just doesn't offer. There's not a hospital. Then there may be payment for travel to go out of state to get that rare procedure. It could be a cancer treatment or something else. But that's very rare. And like you said, it's not a common practice that travel is covered by this federal program. But it has happened before. But never would we think that uh, we would pay for travel something beyond that the Medicaid even covers. Medicaid only pays for abortions in the case of life of the mother, rape and incest. Yeah. So the fact that they want to push the limits beyond to now pay for travel, something that this own health program doesn't even cover, is just a step too far. Connor, any indication of what might happen if a woman got her travel expenses covered and then changed her mind and decided not to get an abortion? Yeah, I mean, that's the kind of questions that this arises, right? So, you know, someone goes to the state of California where they're ready and willing at the border to bring you into their state to do an abortion, and, and someone changes their mind. And now at that same point, uh, taxpayers were on the hook through Medicaid to pay for that travel. It just opens up a whole can of worms that I don't know that the administration has even thought through fully themselves. But they are feeling tons of pressure from the abortion advocates um, that elected Joe Biden to be here for this moment to promote abortion if Roe v. Wade was overturned. And so they, they are expecting a lot. You're seeing it from the Democrat members of Congress with their votes. You're seeing it from the grassroots. And so they are wanting the Biden administration to push things that aren't even legally tested and founded. And uh, they might actually have the place to pay that these sort of things not just fall flat, but then uh, backtrack the authority that the administration has to promote these abortion causes. Connor, in about 30 seconds, is there going to be a congressional response to this? We sure hope so. We already have a bill. Buddy Carter's got ready to go to make sure that this does not happen. We look forward to tracking that. And Connor Samuelsberger, as always, we are super grateful for your time today. Thanks so much. Thank you, Joseph. Connor and his team do a great job of tracking these bills, not only on the Hill in Washington, D.C., but all over the country and bringing that to you. When we come back, is the Biden administration prepared to defund programs that feed needy students because the schools that provide those programs don't want to allow boys into girls' locker rooms. That appears might be the case. We'll talk about it when we come back here on Washington Watch. Stay with us. Would you like to spend consistent time in God's Word? Then join Family Research Council on an exciting journey through the Bible. FRC's two-year Bible reading plan helps you to approach daily Bible reading intentionally. You will dive deeper into the nature of God and how His Word speaks into cultural issues of today. All wisdom comes from God, and He has given us the Bible as a way to understand the world. His Word is necessary in our lives, so much so that Christ said, we are to live on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He calls it our daily bread because we need it daily to sustain us and nourish us spiritually, just like food does physically. Start this adventure today with Family Research Council. When you sign up, we'll text you with daily passages and questions that help prepare you for conversations with your friends and family. To begin this journey, visit frc.org slash Bible. First Peter 3.15 instructs us to always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks for a reason for the hope that we have. The mission of FRC's online center for biblical worldview is to carry out that first by training Christians to advance and defend the faith in their families, communities, and the public square, as now more than ever, we need to be grounded in the truth of God's word. 
The Center for Biblical Worldview provides amazing written resources for a wide range of relevant issues, including biblical stances on voting, religious liberty, abortion, marriage, and sexuality. Each of these topics comes as a free downloadable PDF version, abbreviated version, and Spanish translation, along with a prayer guide. To access this written series or to sign up for the Center for Biblical Worldview's monthly newsletter, visit frc.org worldview. Did you know that from as early as 12 weeks, and certainly by 20 weeks, an unborn child can feel pain? Did you know the issue of pornography is growing among women? Did you know that pornography, sex trafficking, and abortion are all linked and on the rise across the globe? Issues such as pornography, human trafficking, drug legalization, and abortion are all violations of human dignity and have resulted in the devaluation of human life in our culture. Family Research Council stands firm on the principle that every life has value, ought to be respected, and has been designed for a unique purpose. Educate yourself on the harms of pornography, human trafficking, and abortion so that you can offer hope and help. Learn more at frc.org forward slash life. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony today. A reminder that the website is TonyPerkins.com. Now it takes a special kind of person to deny meals to needy children just to make a point about gender identity. But it looks like President Biden may be willing to do just that. According to recent guidance from the United States Department of Agriculture, schools must comply with Washington's standards on gender identity and sexual orientation or lose their federal meal funding. Is the Biden administration prepared to stop Tampa Christian schools from feeding low-income students until every bathroom, locker room, and sports teams is open to boys who claim to be girls? Joining me now to discuss this is Erica Steinmiller-Perdomo, legal counsel for the Alliance Defending Freedom, which is taking the Biden administration to court over this case. Erica, welcome to Washington Watch. Thank you for having me. Now, you heard my description there. Tell us a bit more about this program and why it's being threatened. Yeah, well, your description was spot on. Right now, ADF is representing Grant Park Christian Academy, standing up against the Biden administration's radical redefinition of sex in Title IX that's threatening to take away school lunches from children in this low-income school. Now, you guys have, of course, taken this case, uh, presumably because you think the Biden administration's actions here are inappropriate. What's your argument on behalf of the school? Well, not only are they inappropriate, they're unlawful. The Biden administration is violating federal laws and redefining this Title IX without going through the proper processes. In the process, they're violating the school's free speech rights and their religious freedoms. And Erica, to that point, I know that the Bostock decision has created a lot of a, a lot of anxiety and a lot of problems in in this arena. The Supreme Court said uh, that redefined sex to include the definition of gender identity. Therefore, the Biden administration and many on the left say that means that this outcome is required. The school may not be a beneficiary of these funds to help fund uh, school feeding programs. 
Is that a wrong way to look at what the law is at this point? It's a wrong way because Bostock did not address Title IX. And Title IX doesn't say anything about gender identity um, or sexual orientation. So the Biden administration's redefinition in this area is unfounded. And the means by which they're going through trying to implement this on the schools is unlawful. Now, Erica, if the White House's position were to stand and they were to defund all feeding programs connected to religious organizations or schools that have a conviction that boys cannot become girls and girls cannot become boys, how many school lunch programs would be effective? Well, this isn't just a problem for the religious schools. Title IX applies to all schools and programs that receive federal funding for its nutrition programs. So we're seeing this across public schools, charter schools, private schools, um, any schools that are participating in the National School Lunch Program, through that program, these kids are getting breakfast, lunch, and after-school snack in the, in the schools. So the families, especially at Grand Park Christian Academy, they rely on these meals being provided for their kids. They come from low income, a low-income community in Tampa, Florida, and Grand Park Christian Academy is a service to that community. Mm -hmm. They're providing a Christian education. They're providing a respectful, loving environment for the children of the community. And at the same time, they're giving them these essential meals that the families need. Tell us the status of this case. The, the White House has threatened to defund. Have they already cut off the funds? You guys are helping them respond to this. Where are we at in the process of resolving this dispute? So the school is applying for its annual participation in the National School Lunch Program. It's been a part of this program for about five years. And right now, They've requested exemptions in light of these new policies that have come down from the Biden administration. And the Biden administration has ignored their requests for a religious exemption that's written into federal law. So school's about to start in a week. We have, yes, just yesterday, we filed a time-sensitive motion in the court asking the court to urgently stop enforcement of the unlawful mandate, which would preclude the school from being involved and, and being approved for participation in the National School Lunch Program if they don't comply with all these policies, which include updating their websites, updating um, posters, publications in the school, and including this language that would apply far beyond the lunch lines. Grand Park Christian Academy would never turn away a hungry kid in a lunch line. But these Title IX regulations, they apply much more broadly than that. They would reach the bathrooms at the school. They would reach um, school uniform policies and allow biological boys to come to school in a skirt or allow biological boys to enter the girls' private spaces. It would also impact the hiring and even preferred pronoun usage in daily conversations. So the impact of it, um, it, it extends far beyond the lunchroom. But we're going to court to ask the to ask the court to weigh in and just make sure that these kids get meals. And Erica, you mentioned the many uh, potential implications of this position that the White House is currently taking against schools. But if they can do this to schools, does it stand to threaten any other entities as well? Yes, it'll impact other um, other entities that accept federal funding for nutrition programs. So it's it goes beyond just the National School Lunch Program. But the case that we're dealing with is focused on making sure that kids in school receive meals. 
And, and finally, what do you expect the resolution of this case to be, and how long do you think that's going to take? Well, we have a court date um, next Thursday, and ADF attorneys are going to be arguing as to why this mandate is unlawful, why it's violating the school's religious freedom and their free speech rights. And uh, we're hoping for an answer from the court as early as next week after we make those arguments. And that would just ensure that going forward, these kids and their families know that they can rely on Grant Park Christian Academy providing them meals in school. Well, and that it's, it seems like such a small issue, but of course, for the, for the families affected by these programs, it is not a small issue at all. And it really is tragic that uh, we are having to go to court to insist that the federal government just cooperate with different people, because really this is essentially the federal government saying, we don't like what you think about this, therefore we will not help you uh, feed kids who might go hungry otherwise. It's a terrible position, but we thank you, Erica, and everyone at the Alliance Defending Freedom for your persistent, uh, consistent, and courageous defense of religious freedom for all of us. Thanks so much for your time as well. Thank you for your support. And we do uh, love the, our friends at the Alliance Defending Freedom. Coming up next, we're going to go to California for one of the worst pieces of legislation I may have ever seen. And that's saying something uh, from California, as you might expect. We'll talk about it when we come back right here on Washington Watch. Are you a university student? Do you know a university student, specifically one who wants to grow as a Christian leader to positively influence public policy and the culture? Look no further. Family Research Council has a life-changing 12 to 15 week internship program that has prepared and equipped students to take the next step in their professional journey. With a speaker series focusing on careers and callings, lectures from prominent conservative leaders, and weekly biblical worldview training, students will grow in personal and professional development. Interns have the opportunity to work in policy, communications, event planning, and more. They will gain real-world experience working directly with our experts who will guide them in pursuing careers of influence so that they can make a difference wherever God calls. This paid internship offers fully funded housing in the heart of downtown D.C., giving you the chance to experience our nation's capital. Visit frc.org internships to apply. What is biblical masculinity? In our culture of gender confusion, there aren't many examples of godly manhood. Men, husbands, and fathers need to find a model of godly manhood, leadership, and strength. But where can they find it in our culture? Stand Courageous Men's Ministry was created to help men find this model of godly manhood and to develop a strong biblical character, cultivate positive habits, build and rebuild relationships, and make commitments that will move men closer to God's good purpose and design. Men who will stand courageous. Join us at a Stand Courageous Men's Conference to discuss critical aspects of masculinity. These conferences are led by men who understand the issues men face. They unpack our role as a defender, provider, instructor, and battle buddy so that we can make an influence as a chaplain inside and outside the home. Learn more and find a Stand Courageous event near you at StandCourageous.com. Welcome back to Washington Watch. Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony. The website again is TonyPerkins.com. Senate Bill 107, a California bill, would allow children being denied puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, or gender surgeries to 
be taken custody. A bill would give the state of California the authority to take custody of those children to facilitate that reassignment. Here is uh, Senator Cal California Senator uh, Weiner talking about this issue. So for anyone saying this takes away parental rights, that is a completely frivolous, made-up argument. This is, these, we're protecting these families literally from states that are saying, if you parent make a decision about your kid's health care, you're going to prison. And the reason he's saying that the issue of parental rights is a completely frivolous issue is because it is not a completely frivolous issue. But here to talk about it more with me is Greg Burt. He's the director of capital engagement for the California Family Council. Greg, welcome to Washington Watch. Hey, thanks for having me. Good to see you. Uh, you heard a bit there from Senator Weiner. You've been tracking this bill there in California. What do people know about it that I may have not yet described? Well, uh, how Senator Weiner is actually describing the bill, you know, what's happening is, is states around the country realize that uh, transgender drugs, puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, and, uh, you know, surgeries that are maiming uh, young women and men, you know, this is being done on minors, right, to transition them, to make their bodies match their feelings. And states around the country now are finally realizing this is bad for kids and they're outlawing it. Well, California wants to become a sanctuary for parents, kids to come to California to get those uh, drugs and surgeries, right? And it's and of course, uh, Senator Weiner is is acting like this is a uh, a bill to protect parental rights, and you know, th so that's how he's portraying it. Yeah. But this, the bill, what it also does, if if a if a minor makes it to California, even is brought here by someone who is not their uh, custodial parent, yeah. California will allow the courts to take jurisdiction of their child temporarily, so they can get these maiming treatments. And, yeah. and so, th so this is really a threat to the entire uh, country. Great. Right? California is now declaring war on parenthood. Yeah, Greg, I want to get some clarification on there because it talks sure. about uh, uh, emergency temporary jurisdiction. And typically in custody disputes, and we've heard, we've seen cases of this where the court will award custody of the child to one parent over another parent because of a disagreement about this issue. But is this actually the state taking custody, essentially, of the child? Well, it's both. It, 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 it authorizes the state to take custody, but it also authorizes the state to give custody to the non-custodial parent. I mean, just, just to give you an idea of what this is doing, this is Alliance Defending Freedom who put together a legal memorandum, and they put some instances here about scenarios that could happen. And he, here's one of the scenarios. An unfit parent about to lose custody could travel to California with their child, give the child puberty blockers across this hormones, and in doing so, win custody under SB 107, even if the home state has already entered a judgment against that parent. So does that answer your question? <laughs> yes. I mean, and there are so many potential and strange issues. And you mentioned the fact that this would be California claiming custody over children who don't live in California and, and claiming right. superiority over the custody decisions of courts in other states involving people who live in other states. So 
from a legal perspective, there's a full faith and credit issue that certainly uh, this this bill would be challenged in court on that and many other grounds, I presume. But where is this bill at in the process? Well, this bill is what they call a gut and amend, meaning when it was through in the Senate, it was a completely different bill. Uh, But once it got to the assembly, the the author, his name is Scott Senator Weiner, a Democrat out of San Francisco, he he completely gutted the bill and put in brand new language. So the bill has now been through three different uh, hearings, uh, is overwhelmingly supported by the Democrats. Next week, we expect the bill to go to the floor of the assembly, and then it will go to the Senate. So this yeah. thing is sailing through, and I'm I would we need other states to raise alarm. Governors, attorney generals, they need to call out that this bill is a direct threat to the parents in their states. You know, Greg, we've seen recently several European European nations back away from gender reassignment surgeries for minors and specific, specifically say, we're not going to do this anymore because we haven't seen evidence that this is actually helpful to children. But what the state of California proposes to do with this legislation is say that any parent who holds that position, which is becoming the scientific consensus in Europe, that's grounds for losing custody because that parent would be a de facto threat to their child. And therefore, there's an emergency. Do the legislators in California know that or do they just not care? I don't know. We've been trying to tell them. Uh, the sadly, a lot of the, the major medical organizations are are in support of this type of treatment for kids with gender dysphoria. Sadly, there are way too many doctors who know that this is bad for kids, but because uh, if they speak up, it could ruin their careers, they're silent. Yeah. And so all the major medical organizations who have any clout, they're promoting this as the way to help kids. and. Yeah. The legislators are taking advantage of that. They're hiding behind those doctors. So we need doctors to speak up, right? This silence is killing us and it's hurting children. Yeah. A lot of people need to speak up, but Greg, we thank you for coming today and speaking up and encouraging other people to do so. God bless you. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks so much. When we come back, Tony will join us on his show. He's in Chicago talking about the next steps in the pro-life movement. We'll talk to him about that and some other things as well. Stay with us here on Washington Watch. What is biblical masculinity? In our culture of gender confusion, there aren't many examples of godly manhood. Men, husbands, and fathers need to find a model of godly manhood, leadership, and strength. But where can they find it in our culture? Stand Courageous Men's Ministry was created to help men find this model of godly manhood and to develop a strong biblical character, cultivate positive habits, build and rebuild relationships, and make commitments that will move men closer to God's good purpose and design. Men who will stand courageous. Join us at a Stand Courageous Men's Conference to discuss critical aspects of masculinity. These conferences are led by men who understand the issues men face. They unpack our role as a defender, provider, instructor, and battle buddy so that we can make an influence as a chaplain inside and outside the home. Learn more and find a Stand Courageous event near you at StandCourageous.com. With the increase in tech censorship of conservatives and Christians, Family Research Council created a tech subscription platform to be sure we don't go completely dark due to censorship. 
It is important to us that we stay connected with you and that you stay informed. So if we get canceled, you can still access updates on faith, family, and freedom. How? Just text STAN to 67742 to sign up for our text alerts, and you will get FRC's content straight to your phone. Again, just text STAN to 67742, and you will get alerts on the biggest stories of the day. With just a simple text, always have access to our content and stay informed and connected with like-minded community. Text STAND to 67742. That's STAND to 67742. Are you a university student? Do you know a university student, specifically one who wants to grow as a Christian leader to positively influence public policy and the culture? Look no further. Family Research Council has a life-changing 12 to 15 week internship program that has prepared and equipped students to take the next step in their professional journey. With a speaker series focusing on careers and callings, lectures from prominent conservative leaders, and weekly biblical worldview training, students will grow in personal and professional development. Interns have the opportunity to work in policy, communications, event planning, and more. They will gain real-world experience working directly with our experts who will guide them in pursuing careers of influence so that they can make a difference wherever God calls. This paid internship offers fully funded housing in the heart of downtown D.C., giving you the chance to experience our nation's capital. Visit frc.org slash internships to apply. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony today. Reminder that the website is TonyPerkins.com. Washington Watch viewers and listeners will remember that just one year ago, Republican Party insiders were openly strategizing about moving the party toward embracing the LGBT agenda. Now, the party is a big tent, and there are sometimes competing views on how big that tent should be. We covered this issue closely in the past, and you, the Washington Watch audience, are a big part of the reason the Republican Party did not continue down the line it was moving toward. Not only did they not move forward with plans to embrace the sexual revolution, but they invited Tony Perkins, who of course is the president of the Family Research Council and the host of the show that you are currently watching, to speak at the 2022 Republican National Committee Summer Meeting today in Chicago. Well, today, Tony, Tony joins us excuse me, from Chicago with an update on everything that has happened there today and has happened in the last year. Tony, thanks for taking some time. Welcome to your show. Well, thank you, Joseph, and thanks for filling in for me. I appreciate you uh, sitting in today. Uh, as, as you mentioned, I'm up in uh, Chicago today, the summer meeting of the RNC. Uh, this is the state committee men and women and the state chairs that get together, and uh, they meet, I think it's quarterly. But, yes, uh, this morning I had the opportunity to, to speak at a uh, prayer meeting, provided a devotional thought from uh, Psalm chapter 90, which is a part of our reading plan at uh, FRC, which people can find at frc.org slash Bible. So I invited members of the RNC to join us on that journey through Scripture and to share a thought 
with him uh, based on that psalm written by uh, by Moses, but then also led a panel discussion uh, this afternoon on the um, the issue of a, pro, a post row world and how we continue to reach out and bring pro life and evangelical voters uh, to the the the, the uh, to vote uh, in line with what the Republican Party uh, is advocating, and that's the key. It's, uh, as we've talked about on the program, it's the policies. And I discussed the sage cons. That sage cons are not driven by party. They're not driven by personality. They are drawn in by policy, by the the, the platforms. And that's what uh, I encourage them to focus on, to keep a platform that is in line with traditional family values. And then if they want to continue to grow a majority, they've got to have something to offer. And it begins with those policies. Tony, you mentioned a couple different topics. There is kind of the the slide that started. We became concerned about about a year ago on the LGBT stuff as well as the post Dobbs world. And I want to kind of take each of these in turn, if I can, with you. How would you describe uh, the last year, the developments, the lack of developments? You've had a lot of conversations with people in the Republican Party, urging them not to embrace the sexual revolution. Where, what's the status of that relationship, of the position? How would you describe what, where the party is at at this point? Well, in your opening, you commented on the uh, the listenership and viewership of Washington Watch, and they responded, and others responded when we, we raised the alarm. And, and uh, you know, we're very cautious. We don't just, uh, we're not uh, crying wolf. When we say there's a problem, there is a problem. And people responded to a party that thought, nah, you know, we can go down this path. And they quickly found out they couldn't, uh, just like a number of uh, those 47 Republicans that recently voted to codify the 2015 Supreme Court's redefinition of marriage into law. Many of them heard from listeners from Washington Watch and viewers and, and others concerned about this issue. And they've they've kind of been in retreat on that vote. So it's important that people weigh in and they express themselves, even at the risk of being called, you know, a bigot, homophobe, whatever, whatever you know, pejorative term they want to use. But to your question, the party leadership has responded. Now, I'm not saying the party is perfect, but the party is a vehicle. The two parties, we have two major parties in this this country in our political system, and it's basically how you have to work. And I think it's important that we influence these parties to carry um, policies and positions that are in keeping with uh, biblical values. I mean, that's what we do in Washington, D.C. with elected officials. And that's what we do with uh, with the, the parties. So the, uh, the the chairwoman of the party, Rana uh, McDaniel, has been very um, open and receptive. In fact, she's been on my program since that time. And, and she's a large uh, part of the reason that I'm here in Chicago uh, speaking to the faith council and uh, in encouraging them to move forward again in embracing policies that allow conservative sage cons, if you will, spiritually active, governance-engaged Christians uh, to vote for their candidates. Uh, Tony, I think you highlight a really important point there that, of course, 
As Christians, our goal is not to be Republicans or Democrats, conservatives or liberals. We are to be biblical. And to the extent one candidate or one party does that, then we, we move that direction. But we know that the, the differences between the Republican Party and the Democratic Party uh, are significant, especially on a lot of the uh, biblical issues that we debate. But we also know that the Republican Party, which tries to be seen as conservative, has had pressure from within to embrace some of the sexual revolution components of that. Do you see that as a as a practical temptation where they say, well, we need to get these voters or are there people within the Republican Party who are sympathetic or maybe even enthusiastic about that agenda? You know, Joseph, there's there there are benefits that come with longevity, uh, you know, and I've been at this for uh, over a quarter of a century. And I when I first entered politics back in the early 90s. Um, and, and I was not one that went to uh, was a college Republican. I, I was not really inter- I voted because that was my duty, uh, both as a citizen, as a Christian. But I was not engaged in politics until the abortion issue was really the threshold, the doorway through my entry into the political realm. And back then in 1992, uh, when I took that first step, the. This was a very controversial issue among the ranks of Republicans, the, the, the issue of abortion. In fact, um, there was constant fighting in the ranks of Republicans because many said, we've got to be inclusive. We've got to, we've got to broaden our view on this, and, and so we can't be too strident on the issue of abortion. Well, uh, fortunately, the, those who were committed to truth and to life did not heed that uh, political uh, spin. Uh, they stayed focused. They encouraged people to vote pro-life. And the movement has produced a party that now, in fact, in the last, uh, you know, last major presidential election, 2016, when we had a big field of Republican candidates, only one of the 17 described himself as pro-choice. They were all pro-life. That is a huge change. In fact, the Republicans in Congress now, today, uh, among in the Repu- Republican conference, every single one uh, embraces a pro-life view. Now, there might be some that are not as strong as others, but there are no longer, after the 2018 election, any pro-choice, openly pro-choice Republicans. That's huge. That is absolutely huge. So we have made tremendous strides over the last two decades. And I say that to say we hear a lot of the same arguments now on this issue of the LGBTQ agenda. And while there are different issues at their core, they're the same. It is about denial of truth. It is about denial of uh, the natural order, what God has created. And, and so therefore, as believers, we cannot yield to those arguments. We need to continue to stand on biblical truth. And I believe, Joseph, that as we continue to stand, we're going to bring people our way because we we see ultimately, now it took 49 years on row, but I think ultimately people begin to see the, the, the deception, the destruction that comes about by pursuing um, a lie. And that's what this idea of being pro-choice was. It was a lie. And the same thing that you can define your own gender and that, uh, you know, we can uh, we, we can deny that God created us, as Jesus said in Matthew 19, male and female, we will find and we're seeing it already. We're seeing what's happening in public schools. We're seeing it in the, this uh, uh, transgender ideology that's being pushed in our schools and parents are pushing back. People are waking up. But 
we have to remain firm and stand even in the face of great opposition. I think that's a really great point. We now kind of can reflect back on 50 years of this of this Roe era and see what diligence and perseverance toward the truth, even when it was in some cases in 1973, very unpopular, according to public opinion polls. You see the polling change because there were the resolute who understood that it was the right thing to do, even if it wasn't unpop even if it wasn't popular. And ultimately that prevailed. But, Tony, you are helping to lead a conversation there in Chicago about the post Dobbs era, the post-Roe era as well. Uh, what are your insights? What are your thoughts? What should the pro-life community uh, be doing in a post-Roe world? More of the same. Uh, we need to continue to reach out with compassion, speaking truth, uh, defending the unborn, helping mothers make the right choices. And I think in many ways, it's the same playbook that, and I say playbook, um, I don't want to minimize what we've been doing, but it's really biblical truth. It is, it's walking out our Christian faith in an authentic way. We've stood firm for truth, but we've dis we've displayed mercy uh, as we've reached out to mothers and, and uh, crisis pregnancies. We've volunteered. We've given millions of dollars. We have 3,000 care pregnancy centers across the country that Elizabeth Warren wants to shut down on the left. And so I think we, we continue that. We expand areas of adoption. But this ties into this other issue, Joseph, because we have to we do these things because of our faith. All right. We do these things because we're compelled to do them as we serve our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We love our fellow neighbor, our fellow man. And so we have to protect the religious freedom that we have that is the foundation from which we do this outreach. And that is exactly what is under attack today. So I think the the battle continues, uh, but we have seen God answer our prayers and prosper the work of our hands. And so this should encourage us to continue standing for truth, loving people, loving people, regardless of the decisions they make, but not affirming all choices that they make. Yeah. And Tony, you bring a lot of encouragement because of the success on the abortion issue over the last generations, really now. But it's it's significant that this week we've had a real setback in the pro-life cause in Kansas. A pro-life constitutional amendment was defeated. Uh, ever since then, the last much most of the last 48 hours, the left, the White House, the abortion industry has been taking victory laps, celebrating this as a massive victory for abortion, suggesting that America really does love abortion, wants abortion to be, you know, legal at all stages uh, of a pregnancy. What do you think is the right way to think about the result from Kansas? Well, Joseph, I'm not going to say I'm not uh, disappointed with the outcome there. You know, I was there uh, two weekends ago speaking in Wichita and Kansas City doing some events, actually broadcast a couple of days from from there. So, yes, it was a it was a disappointment. But I think we got to put it in context. First off, this amendment uh, was proposed before Dobbs was uh, before the Dobbs decision was made. This was based upon the Supreme Court there in Kansas really taking this issue out of the hands of the legislature. And so I don't think there was any anticipation that this would become, there was no anticipation that this would become a national issue. And so I think those that were advancing this were unprepared for the millions of dollars that uh, flowed into the state from the pro-abortion community to try to make this a national issue. Secondly, we've got to consider this is Kansas. And Kansas has been um, not really a, 
known as a pro-life state historically. I mean, it was a place of late-term abortions. It was a place, uh, Senator Bob Dole, who when he ran for president, I think the reason he lost was that he was very dismissive of the pro-life plank of the uh, Republican Party. He was he did not describe himself back then as being pro-life. So, uh, well, he's a good man. I, I appreciate him, got to know him. Uh, but the, the Kansas is an odd state when it comes to to some of these issues. I think the uh, the way forward here is to continue to work, educate people. And uh, I do not think that Kansas is going to be reflective of the rest of the nation. We've got some other ballot initiatives that will be on in the fall. And we have state legislatures even now that are advancing pro-life legislation. So, you know, we said from the start, Joseph, that our work was just beginning, that this was not the end and we're not we cannot rest. We cannot think that this issue has been settled. The work continues. And and that's our role. Uh, as I often close the program, actually, as I always close, close the program from Ephesians chapter six, you know, our call to to engage in the spiritual battle, which is what life is. It is a spiritual battle. We are called to stand. And so until the Lord takes us home or or uh, he comes back, we're to continue standing for his truth. Now, Tony, we are about to close the program, but I do want to cover one other issue with you in about a minute, if I can, because you and FRC have been one of the national stories this week here in Washington, D.C., IRS targeting FRC, attempted intimidation, misrepresentation of what really FRC has done. About 45 seconds. Uh, what's your reaction to everything that's happening? It tells me that we're being successful because we're drawing the fire of uh, the opposition. Look, we are an organization that works with churches across this country. We're an association of churches. We share the gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ. I do it almost every day on the radio program. We make no uh, apologies for who we are. We're a, a Bible-believing Christian organization that wants to share for the truth and defend the truth in our nation's capital and all across this nation. So we expect to draw the uh, the opposition's fire, and, and that's fine. Uh, they can do it, but we're going to continue to stand. We will not be silenced. And, Tony, we are so grateful for your courage uh, in that way, and we thank you for stepping away from your activities in Chicago and joining us today. Have a great God-blessed time there. Thank you. All right, Joseph. Thanks for filling in for me. And it has been my pleasure to fill in for Tony today to be with you as always. We look forward to seeing you tomorrow. Until then, fear God and nothing else. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234. This is Tony Perkins.